This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Volume 2, Chapter 19. Miss Ophelia's Experiences and Opinions Continued. Tom, you needn't get me the horses. I don't want to go, she said. Why not, Miss Eva? These things sink into my heart, Tom, said Eva. They sink into my heart, she repeated earnestly. I don't want to go. And she turned from Tom and went into the house. A few days after, another woman came in old Prue's place to bring the rusks. Miss Ophelia was in the kitchen. Lord, said Dinah, what's got Prue? Prue isn't coming any more, said the woman mysteriously. Why not? said Dinah. She ain't dead, is she? We doesn't exactly know. She's down cellar, said the woman, glancing at Miss Ophelia. After Miss Ophelia had taken the rusks, Dinah followed the woman to the door. What has got Prue, anyhow? she said. The woman seemed desirous, yet reluctant to speak, and answered in low, mysterious tone, "'Well, you mustn't tell nobody. Prue, she got drunk again, and they had her down cellar, and thar they left her all day. And I hearn em say that the flies had got to her, and she's dead.' Dinah held up her hands, and, turning, saw close by her side the spirit-like form of Evangeline her large, mystic eyes dilated with horror, and every drop of blood driven from her lips and cheeks. "'Lord bless us! Miss Eva's going faint away! What got us all to let her hair such talk? Her pa'll be rail mad!' "'I shan't faint, Dinah,' said the child firmly. "'And why shouldn't I hear it? It ain't so much for me to hear it, as for poor Prue to suffer it. Lord's sakes, it isn't for sweet, delicate young ladies like you. These yer stories isn't—it's enough to kill him." Eva sighed again, and walked upstairs with a slow and melancholy step. Miss Ophelia anxiously inquired the woman's story. Dinah gave a very garrulous version of it, to which Tom added the particulars which he had drawn from her that morning. "'An abominable business! Perfectly horrible!' she exclaimed, as she entered the room where St. Clair lay, reading his paper. "'Pray, what iniquity has turned up now?' said he. "'What now? Why, those folks have whipped Prue to death,' said Miss Ophelia, going on with great strength of detail into the story, and enlarging on its most shocking particulars. "'I thought it would come to that some time,' said St. Clair, going on with his paper. "'Thought so. Aren't you going to do anything about it?' said Miss Ophelia. "'Haven't you got any select men or anybody to interfere and look after such matters?' It's commonly supposed that the property interest is a sufficient guard in these cases. If people choose to ruin their own possessions, I don't know what's to be done. It seems the poor creature was a thief and a drunkard, and so there won't be much hope to get up sympathy for her. It is perfectly outrageous! It is horrid, Augustine! It will certainly bring down vengeance upon you. My dear cousin, I didn't do it, and I can't help it. I would if I could. If low-minded, brutal people will act like themselves, what am I to do? They have absolute control. They are irresponsible despots. There would be no use in interfering. There is no law that amounts to anything practically for such a case. The best we can do is to shut our eyes and ears, and let it alone. It's the only resource left us. 
How can you shut your eyes and ears? How can you let such things alone? My dear child, what do you expect? Here is a whole class, debased, uneducated, indolent, provoking, put, without any sort of terms or conditions, entirely into the hands of such people as the majority in our world are, people who have neither consideration nor self-control, who haven't even an enlightened regard to their own interest, for that's the case with the largest half of mankind. Of course, in a community so organized, what can a man of honorable and humane feelings do but shut his eyes all he can and harden his heart? I can't buy every wretch I see. I can't turn knight-errant and undertake to redress every individual case of wrong in such a city as this. The most I can do is to try and keep out of the way of it." St. Clair's fine countenance was for a moment overcast. He said, "'Come, cousin, don't stand there looking like one of the fates. You've only seen a peep through the curtain, a specimen of what is going on, the world over, in some shape or other. If we are to be prying and spying into all the dismals of life, we should have no heart to anything. Tis like looking too close into the details of Dinah's kitchen." And St. Clair lay back on the sofa, and busied himself with his paper. Miss Ophelia sat down, and pulled out her knitting-work, and sat there grim with indignation. She knit and knit. But while she mused, the fire burned. At last she broke out. I tell you, Augustine, I can't get over things so, if you can. It's a perfect abomination for you to defend such a system. That's my mind." "'What, now?' said St. Clair, looking up. "'At it again, hey?' "'I say it's perfectly abominable for you to defend such a system,' said Miss Ophelia, with increasing warmth. "'I defend it, my dear lady. Whoever said I did defend it?' said St. Clair. "'Of course you defend it. You all do, all you Southerners. What do you have slaves for, if you don't?" "'Are you such a sweet innocent as to suppose nobody in this world ever does what they don't think is right? Don't you, or didn't you ever, do anything that you did not think quite right?' "'If I do, I repent of it, I hope,' said Miss Ophelia, rattling her needles with energy. "'So do I,' said St. Clair, peeling his orange. "'I'm repenting of it all the time. What do you keep on doing it for?' Didn't you ever keep on doing wrong, after you'd repented, my good cousin?" "'Well, only when I've been very much tempted,' said Miss Ophelia. "'Well, I'm very much tempted,' said St. Clair. "'That's just my difficulty. But I always resolve I won't, and I try to break off.' "'Well, I have been resolving I won't, off and on, these ten years,' said St. Clair. "'But I haven't, somehow, got clear. Have you got clear of all your sins, cousin?' "'Cousin Augustine,' said Miss Ophelia, seriously, and laying down her knitting-work, "'I suppose I deserve that you should reprove my shortcomings. I know all you say is true enough. Nobody else feels them more than I do. But it does seem to me, after all, there is some difference between me and you. It seems to me I would cut off my right hand sooner than keep on, from day to day, doing what I thought was wrong.' But then my conduct is so inconsistent with my profession. I don't wonder you reprove me." "'Oh, now, cousin,' said Augustine, sitting down on the floor and laying his head back in her lap, "'don't take on so awfully serious. You know what a good-for-nothing saucy boy I always was. I love to poke you up, that's all, just to see you get earnest. I do think you are desperately distressingly good. 
It tires me to death to think of it. But this is a serious subject, my boy, August, said Miss Ophelia, laying her hand on his forehead. Dismally so, said he. And I, well, I never want to talk seriously in hot weather. What with mosquitoes and all, a fellow can't get himself up to any very sublime moral flights. And I believe, said St. Clair, suddenly rousing himself up, there's a theory now. I understand now why northern nations are always more virtuous than southern ones. I see into that whole subject. Oh, Augustine, you are a sad rattle-brain. Am I? Well, so I am, I suppose. But for once I will be serious now. But you must hand me that basket of oranges. You see, you'll have to stay me with flagons and comfort me with apples, if I'm going to make this effort. Now, said Augustine, drawing the basket up, I'll begin. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a fellow to hold two or three dozen of his fellow-worms in captivity, a decent regard to the opinions of society requires— "'I don't see that you are growing more serious,' said Miss Ophelia. "'Wait. I'm coming on. You'll hear. The short of the matter is, cousin,' said he, his handsome face suddenly settling into an earnest and serious expression. On this abstract question of slavery there can, as I think, be but one opinion. Planters who have money to make by it, clergymen who have planters to please, politicians who want to rule by it, may warp and bend language and ethics to a degree that shall astonish the world at their ingenuity. They can press nature and the Bible, and nobody knows what else, into the service. But, after all, neither they nor the world believe in it one particle the more. It comes from the devil, that's the short of it. And to my mind it's a pretty respectable specimen of what he can do in his own line." Miss Ophelia stopped her knitting and looked surprised, and St. Clair, apparently enjoying her astonishment, went on. "'You seem to wonder. But if you will get me fairly at it, I'll make a clean breast of it. This cursed business a curse of God and man, what is it? Strip it of all its ornament, run it down to the root and nucleus of the whole, and what is it? Why, because my brother Quashi is ignorant and weak, and I am intelligent and strong, because I know how and can do it, therefore I may steal all he has, keep it, and give him only such and so much as suits my fancy. Whatever is too hard, too dirty, too disagreeable for me, I may set Quashi to doing. Because I don't like work, Quashi shall work. Because the sun burns me, Quashi shall stay in the sun. Quashi shall earn the money, and I will spend it. Quashi shall lie down in every puddle, that I may walk over dry shod. Quashi shall do my will, and not his, all the days of his mortal life, and have such chance of getting to heaven, at last, as I find convenient. This I take to be about what slavery is. I defy anybody on earth to read our slave-code as it stands in our law-books, and make anything else of it. Talk of the abuses of slavery! Humbug! The thing itself is the essence of all abuse. And the only reason why the land don't sink under it, like Sodom and Gomorrah, is because it is used in a way infinitely better than it is. For pity's sake, for shame's sake, because we are men born of women and not savage beasts, many of us do not, and dare not. We would scorn to use the full power which our savage laws put into our hands. And he who goes the furthest and does the worst 
only uses, within limits, the power that the law gives him. St. Clair has started up, and, as his manner was when excited, was walking, with hurried steps, up and down the floor. His fine face, classic as that of a Greek statue, seemed actually to burn with the fervor of his feelings. His large blue eyes flashed, and he gestured with an unconscious earnestness. Miss Ophelia had never seen him in this mood before, and she sat perfectly silent. "'I declare to you,' said he, suddenly stopping before his cousin, "'it's no sort of use to talk or to feel on this subject, but I declare to you there have been times when I have thought, if the whole country would sink, and hide all this injustice and misery from the light, I would willingly sink with it. When I have been travelling up and down on our boats, or about on my collecting tours, and reflected that every brutal, disgusting, mean, low-lived fellow I met was allowed by our laws to become absolute despot of as many men, women, and children as he could cheat, steal, or gamble money enough to buy, when I have seen such men in actual ownership of helpless children, of young girls and women, I have been ready to curse my country, to curse the human race. "'Augustine, Augustine,' said Miss Ophelia, "'I'm sure you've said enough. I never in my life heard anything like this, even at the North.' "'At the North,' said St. Clair, with a sudden change of expression, and resuming something of his habitual careless tone, "'Pooh! Your Northern folk are cold-blooded. You are cool in everything. You can't begin to curse uphill and down as we can, when we get fairly at it.' "'Well, but the question is,' said Miss Ophelia, "'oh, yes, to be sure, the question is, and a deuce of a question it is, how came you in this state of sin and misery? Well, I shall answer in the good old words you used to teach me, Sundays. I came so by ordinary generation. My servants were my father's, and, what is more, my mother's, and now they are mine, they and their increase, which bids fair to be a pretty considerable item.' My father, you know, came first from New England, and he was just such another man as your father, a regular old Roman, upright, energetic, noble-minded, with an iron will. Your father settled down in New England, to rule over rocks and stones, and to force an existence out of nature, and mine settled in Louisiana, to rule over men and women, and force existence out of them. My mother, said St. Clair, getting up and walking to a picture at the end of the room, and gazing upward with a face fervent with veneration. She was divine. Don't look at me so. You know what I mean. She probably was of mortal birth, but, as far as ever I could observe, there was no trace of any human weakness or error about her, and everybody that lives to remember her, whether bond or free, servant, acquaintance, relation, all say the same. Why, cousin, that mother has been all that has stood between me and utter unbelief for years. She was a direct embodiment and personification of the New Testament, a living fact to be accounted for, and to be accounted for in no other way than by its truth. "'Oh, mother, mother!' said St. Clair, clasping his hands in a sort of transport, and then suddenly checking himself he came back, and seating himself on an ottoman he went on. "'My brother and I were twins.' And they say, you know, that twins ought to resemble each other. But we were in all points a contrast. He had black, fiery eyes, coal-black hair, a strong, fine, Roman profile, and a rich brown complexion. I had blue eyes, golden hair, a Greek outline, and fair complexion. He was active and observing, I dreamy and inactive. 
He was generous to his friends and equals, but proud, dominant, overbearing to inferiors, and utterly unmerciful to whatever set itself up against him. Truthful we both were, he from pride and courage, I from a sort of abstract ideality. We loved each other, about as boys generally do, off and on, and in general. He was my father's pet, and I my mother's. There was a morbid sensitiveness and acuteness of feeling in me on all possible subjects, of which he and my father had no kind of understanding, and with which they could have no possible sympathy. But mother did. And so, when I had quarrelled with Alfred, and father looked sternly on me, I used to go off to mother's room and sit by her. I remember just how she used to look, with her pale cheeks, her deep, soft, serious eyes, her white dress. She always wore white. And I used to think of her whenever I read in revelations about the saints that were arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. She had a great deal of genius of one sort and another, particularly in music. And she used to sit at her organ, playing fine old majestic music of the Catholic Church, and singing with a voice more like an angel than a mortal woman. And I would lay my head down on her lap, and cry, and dream, and feel, oh, immeasurably, things that I had no language to say. In those days this matter of slavery had never been canvassed as it has now. Nobody dreamed of any harm in it. My father was a born aristocrat. I think, in some pre-existent state, he must have been in the higher circles of spirits, and brought all his old court pride along with him. For it was in grain, bred in the bone, though he was originally of poor and not in any way of noble family. My brother was begotten in his image. Now an aristocrat, you know, the world over, has no human sympathies, beyond a certain line in society. In England the line is in one place, in Burma in another, and in America in another. But the aristocrat of all these countries never goes over it. What would be hardship and distress and injustice in his own class is a cool matter of course in another one. My father's dividing line was that of color. Among his equals never was a man more just and generous, but he considered the negro, through all possible gradations of color, as an intermediate link between man and animals, and graded all his ideas of justice or generosity on this hypothesis. I suppose to be true, if anybody had asked him, plump and fair, whether they had human immortal souls, he might have hemmed and hawed and said yes. But my father was not a man much troubled with spiritualism. Religious sentiment he had none, beyond a veneration for God, as decidedly the head of the upper classes. Well, my father worked some five hundred negroes. He was an inflexible, driving, punctilious businessman. Everything was to move by system, to be sustained with unfailing accuracy and precision. Now, if you take into account that all this was to be worked out by a set of lazy, twaddling, shiftless laborers, who had grown up all their lives in the absence of every possible motive to learn how to do anything but shirk, as you Vermonters say, and you'll see that there might naturally be, on his plantation, a great many things that looked horrible and distressing to a sensitive child like me. Besides all, he had an overseer, great, tall, slab-sided, two-fisted renegade son of Vermont, begging your pardon, who had gone through a regular apprenticeship in hardness and brutality, and taken his degree to be admitted to practice. My mother never could endure him, nor I, but he obtained an entire ascendancy over my father, 
and this man was the absolute despot of the estate. I was a little fellow then, but I had the same love that I have now for all kinds of human things, a kind of passion for the study of humanity, come in what shape it would. I was found in the cabins and among the field hands a great deal, and of course was a great favorite, and all sorts of complaints and grievances were breathed in my ear, and I told them to mother, and we, between us, formed a sort of committee for a redress of grievances. We hindered and repressed a great deal of cruelty, and congratulated ourselves on doing a vast deal of good, till, as often happens, my zeal overacted. Stubbs complained to my father that he couldn't manage the hands, and must resign his position. Father was a fond, indulgent husband, but a man that never flinched from anything that he thought necessary. And so he put down his foot, like a rock, between us and the field hands. He told my mother, in language perfectly respectful and deferential, but quite explicit, that over the house-servants she should be entire mistress, but that with the field hands he could allow no interference. He revered and respected her above all living beings, but he would have said it all the same to the Virgin Mary herself, if she had come in the way of his system. I used sometimes to hear my mother reasoning cases with him, endeavouring to excite his sympathies. He would listen to the most pathetic appeals with the most discouraging politeness and equanimity. "'It all resolves itself into this,' he would say. "'Must I part with Stubbs, or keep him? Stubbs is the soul of punctuality, honesty, and efficiency, a thorough business hand, and as humane as the general run. We can't have perfection, and if I keep him, I must sustain his administration as a whole, even if there are now and then things that are exceptionable. All government includes some necessary hardness. General rules will bear hard on particular cases. This last maxim my father seemed to consider a settler in most alleged cases of cruelty. After he had said that, he commonly drew up his feet on the sofa, like a man that had disposed of a business, and betook himself to a nap, or the newspaper, as the case might be. The fact is, my father showed the exact sort of talent for a statesman. He could have divided Poland as easily as an orange, or trod on Ireland as quietly and systematically as any man living. At last my mother gave up, in despair. It never will be known, till the last account, what noble and sensitive natures like hers have felt cast utterly helpless into what seems to them an abyss of injustice and cruelty, and which seems so to nobody about them. It has been an age of long sorrow of such natures, in such a hell-begotten sort of world as ours. What remained for her but to train her children in her own views and sentiments? Well, after all you say about training, children will grow up substantially what they are by nature, and only that. From the cradle, Alfred was an aristocrat, and as he grew up, instinctively, all his sympathies and all his reasonings were in that line, and all mother's exhortations went to the winds. As to me, they sunk deep into me. She never contradicted in form anything my father said, or seemed directly to differ from him but she impressed, burnt into my very soul, with all the force of her deep, earnest nature, an idea of the dignity and worth of the meanest human soul. I have looked in her face with solemn awe, when she would point up to the stars in the evening and say to me, "'See there, August, the poorest, meanest soul on our place will be living, when all these stars are gone forever, will live as long as God lives.' 
She had some fine old paintings, one in particular, of Jesus healing a blind man. They were very fine, and used to impress me strongly. "'See there, August,' she would say, "'the blind man was a beggar, poor and loathsome. Therefore he would not heal him afar off. He called him to him, and put his hands on him. Remember this, my boy.' If I had lived to grow up under her care, she might have stimulated me to I know not what of enthusiasm. I might have been a saint, reformer, martyr. But alas, alas, I went from her when I was only thirteen, and I never saw her again. St. Clair rested his head on his hands, and did not speak for some minutes. After a while he looked up and went on. What poor, mean trash this whole business of human virtue is! a mere matter, for the most part, of latitude and longitude, and geographical position, acting with natural temperament. The greater part is nothing but an accident. Your father, for example, settles in Vermont, in a town where all are, in fact, free and equal, becomes a regular church member and deacon, and in due time joins an abolition society, and thinks us all little better than heathens. Yet he is, for all the world, in constitution and habit, a duplicate of my father. I can see it leaking out in fifty different ways. Just the same strong, overbearing, dominant spirit. You know very well how impossible it is to persuade some of the folks in your village that Squire Sinclair does not feel above them. The fact is, though, he has fallen on democratic times, and embraced a democratic theory. He is to the heart an aristocrat, as much as my father, who ruled over five or six hundred slaves. Miss Ophelia felt rather disposed to cavil at this picture, and was laying down her knitting to begin, but St. Clair stopped her. Now, I know every word you are going to say. I do not say they were alike, in fact. One fell into a condition where everything acted against the natural tendency, and the other where everything acted for it. And so one turned out a pretty willful, stout, overbearing old democrat, and the other a willful, stout, old despot. If both had owned plantations in Louisiana, they would have been as alike as two old bullets cast in the same mould. "'What an undutiful boy you are!' said Miss Ophelia. "'I don't mean them any disrespect,' said St. Clair. You know reverence is not my forte. But, to go back to my story, when father died he left the whole property to us twin boys, to be divided as we should agree. There does not breathe on God's earth a nobler-souled, more generous fellow than Alfred, in all that concerns his equals. And we got on admirably with this property question, without a single unbrotherly word or feeling. We undertook to work the plantation together and Alfred, whose outward life and capabilities had double the strength of mine, became an enthusiastic planter, and a wonderfully successful one. But two years' trial satisfied me, and I could not be a partner in that matter. To have a great gang of seven hundred whom I could not know personally, or feel any individual interest in, bought and driven, housed, fed, worked like so many horned cattle, strained up to military precision, the question of how little of life's commonest enjoyments would keep them in working order being a constantly recurring problem, the necessity of drivers and overseers, the ever-necessary whip, first, last, and only argument, the whole thing was insufferably disgusting and loathsome to me, and when I thought of my mother's estimate of one poor human soul, it became even frightful. 
It's all nonsense to talk to me about slaves enjoying all this. To this day I have no patience with the unutterable trash that some of your patronizing northerners have made up, as in their zeal to apologize for our sins. We all know better. Tell me that any man living wants to work all his days, from day dawn till dark, under the constant eye of a master, without the power of putting forth one irresponsible volition on the same dreary, monotonous, unchanging toil, and all for two pairs of pantaloons and a pair of shoes a year, with enough food and shelter to keep him in working order. Any man who thinks that human beings can, as a general thing, be made about as comfortable that way as any other, I wish he might try it. I'd buy the dog, and work him, with a clear conscience." "'I always have supposed,' said Miss Ophelia, "'that you, all of you, approved of these things, and thought them right, according to Scripture.' "'Humbug! We are not quite reduced to that yet. Alfred, who is as determined a despot as ever walked, does not pretend to this kind of defence. No, he stands, high and haughty, on that good old respectable ground, the right of the strongest. And he says, and I think quite sensibly, that the American planter is only doing in another form what the English aristocracy and capitalists are doing by the lower classes. That is, I take it, appropriating them, body and bone, soul and spirit, to their use and convenience. He defends both, and I think at least consistently. He says that there can be no high civilization without enslavement of the masses, either nominal or real. There must, he says, be a lower class, given up to physical toil and confined to an animal nature, and a higher one thereby acquires leisure and wealth for a more expanded intelligence and improvement, and becomes the directing soul of the lower. So he reasons, because, as I said, he is born an aristocrat. So I don't believe, because I was born a democrat." "'How in the world can the two things be compared?' said Miss Ophelia. "'The English labourer is not sold, traded, parted from his family, whipped. He is as much at the will of his employer as if he were sold to him. The slave-owner can whip his refractory slave to death. The capitalist can starve him to death. As to family security, it is hard to say which is the worst, to have one's children sold, or see them starve to death at home. But it's no kind of apology for slavery, to prove that it isn't worse than some other bad thing. I didn't give it for one. Nay, I'll say, besides, that ours is the more bold and palpable infringement of human rights, actually buying a man up like a horse, looking at his teeth, cracking his joints, and trying his paces, and then paying down for him, having spectaculars, breeders, traders, and brokers in human bodies and souls, sets the thing before the eyes of the civilized world in a more tangible form, though the thing done be, after all, in its nature the same. That is, appropriating one set of human beings to the use and improvement of another, without any regard to their own. "'I never thought of the matter in this light,' said Miss Ophelia. Well, I've travelled in England some, and I've looked over a good many documents as to the state of their lower classes, and I really think there is no denying Alfred when he says that his slaves are better off than a large class of the population of England. You see, you must not infer from what I have told you that Alfred is what is called a hard master, for he isn't. He is despotic, and unmerciful to insubordination. He would shoot a fellow down with as little remorse as he would shoot a buck, 
if he opposed him, but in general he takes a sort of pride in having his slaves comfortably fled and accommodated. When I was with him, I insisted that he should do something for their instruction, and to please me he did get a chaplain, and used to have them catechized Sunday, though I believe in his heart that he thought it would do about as much good to set a chaplain over his dogs and horses. And the fact is that a mind stupefied and animalized by every bad influence from the hour of birth, spending the whole of every weekday in unreflecting toil, cannot be done much with by a few hours on Sunday. The teachers of Sunday schools among the manufacturing population of England, and among plantation hands in our country, could perhaps testify to the same result, there and here. Yet some striking exceptions there are among us, from the fact that the negro is naturally more impressible to religious sentiment than the white. "'Well,' said Miss Ophelia, "'how came you to give up your plantation life?' "'Well, we jogged on together some time, till Alfred saw plainly that I was no planter. He thought it absurd, after he had reformed and altered and improved everywhere to suit my notions, that I still remained unsatisfied. The fact was, it was, after all, the thing that I hated the using these men and women, the perpetuation of all this ignorance, brutality, and vice, just to make money for me. Besides, I was always interfering in the details. Being myself one of the laziest of mortals, I had altogether too much fellow-feeling for the lazy. And when poor, shiftless dogs put stones at the bottom of their cotton-baskets to make them weigh heavier, or filled their sacks with dirt, with cotton at the top, it seemed so exactly like what I should do if I were they. I couldn't and wouldn't have them flogged for it. Well, of course, there was an end of plantation discipline, and Alf and I came to about the same point that I and my respected father did years before. So he told me that I was a womanish sentimentalist, and would never do for business life, and advised me to take the bank stock and the New Orleans family mansion, and go to writing poetry, and let him manage the plantation. So we parted, and I came here. But why didn't you free your slaves? Well, I wasn't up to that. To hold them as tools for money-making I could not. Have them to help spend money, you know, didn't look quite so ugly to me. Some of them were old house-servants, to whom I was much attached, and the younger ones were children to the old. All were well satisfied to be as they were. He paused and walked reflectively up and down the room. There was, said St. Clair, a time in my life when I had plans and hopes of doing something in this world more than to float and drift. I had vague, indistinct yearnings to be a sort of emancipator, to free my native land from this spot and stain. All young men have had such fever fits, I suppose, some time. But then—'Why didn't you?' said Miss Ophelia. "'You ought not to put your hand to the plough and look back.' "'Oh, well—' Things didn't go with me as I expected, and I got the despair of living that Solomon did. I suppose it was a necessary incident to wisdom in us both. But, somehow or other, instead of being actor and regenerator in society, I became a piece of driftwood, and have been floating and eddying about ever since. Alfred scolds me every time we meet, and he has the better of me, I grant, for he really does something. His life is a logical result of his opinions, and mine is a contemptible non-sequitur. My dear cousin, can you be satisfied with such a way of spending your probation? Satisfied? Was I not just telling you I despised it? 
But then, to come back to this point, we were on this liberation business. I don't think my feelings about slavery are peculiar. I find many men who, in their hearts, think of it just as I do. The land groans under it, and, bad as it is for the slave, it is worse, if anything, for the master. It takes no spectacles to see that a great class of vicious, improvident, degraded people among us are an evil to us, as well as to themselves. The capitalist and aristocrat of England cannot feel that as we do, because they do not mingle with the class they degrade as we do. They are in our homes, they are the associates of our children, and they form their minds faster than we can, for they are a race that children always will cling to and assimilate with. If Eva now was not more angel than ordinary, she would be ruined. We might as well allow the smallpox to run among them, and think our children would not take it, as to let them be uninstructed and vicious, and think our children will not be affected by that. Yet our laws positively and utterly forbid any efficient general educational system, and they do it wisely, too, for just begin and thoroughly educate one generation, and the whole thing would be blown sky-high. If we did not give them liberty, they would take it." "'And what do you think will be the end of this?' said Miss Ophelia. "'I don't know. One thing is certain, that there is a mustering among the masses the world over, and there is a dies irae coming on sooner or later. The same thing is working in Europe, in England, and in this country. My mother used to tell me of a millennium that was coming, when Christ should reign, and all men should be free and happy and she taught me, when I was a boy, to pray, Thy kingdom come. Sometimes I think all this sighing and groaning and stirring among the dry bones foretells what she used to tell me was coming. But who may abide the day of his appearing? Augustine, sometimes I think you are not far from the kingdom," said Miss Ophelia, laying down her knitting and looking anxiously at her cousin. Thank you for your good opinion but it's up and down with me, up to heaven's gate in theory, down in earth's dust in practice. But there's the tea-bell. Do let's go. And don't say now I haven't had one downright serious talk for once in my life." At table, Marie alluded to the incident of Prue. "'I suppose you'll think, cousin,' she said, "'that we are all barbarians.' "'I think that's a barbarous thing,' said Miss Ophelia but I don't think you are all barbarians." "'Well, now,' said Marie, "'I know it's impossible to get along with some of these creatures. They are so bad they ought not to live. I don't feel a particle of sympathy for such cases. If they'd only behave themselves it would not happen.' "'But, Mama," said Eva, "'the poor creature was unhappy. That's what made her drink.' "'Oh, fiddlestick! As if that were any excuse. I'm unhappy very often. I presume," she said pensively, that I've had greater trials than ever she had. It's just because they are so bad. There's some of them that you cannot break in by any kind of severity. I remember father had a man that was so lazy he would run away just to get rid of work, and lie round in the swamps, stealing and doing all sorts of horrid things. That man was caught and whipped time and again, and it never did him any good. And the last time he crawled off, though he couldn't but just go, and died in the swamp. There was no sort of reason for it, for father's hands were always treated kindly." "'I broke a fellow in once,' said St. Clair, that all the overseers and masters had tried their hands on in vain." "'You?' said Marie. "'Well, I'd be glad to know when you ever did anything of the sort.' "'Well, 
He was a powerful, gigantic fellow, a native-born African, and he appeared to have the rude instinct of freedom in him to an uncommon degree. He was a regular African lion. They called him Scipio. Nobody could do anything with him, and he was sold round from overseer to overseer, till at last Alfred bought him, because he thought he could manage him. Well, one day he knocked down the overseer, and was fairly off into the swamps. I was on a visit to Alf's plantation, for it was after we had dissolved partnership. Alfred was greatly exasperated, but I told him that it was his own fault, and laid him any wager that I could break the man, and finally it was agreed that, if I caught him, I should have him to experiment on. So they mustered out a party of some six or seven with guns and dogs for the hunt. People, you know, can get up as much enthusiasm in hunting a man as a deer, if it is only customary. In fact, I got a little excited myself, though I had only put in as a sort of mediator in case he was caught. Well, the dogs bayed and howled, and we rode and scampered, and finally we started him. He ran and bounded like a buck, and kept us well in the rear for some time. But at last he got caught in an impenetrable thicket of cane. Then he turned to bay, and I tell you he fought the dogs right gallantly. He dashed them to right and left, and actually killed three of them with only his naked fist when a shot from a gun brought him down, and he fell, wounded and bleeding, almost at my feet. The poor fellow looked up at me, with manhood and despair both in his eye. I kept back the dogs and the party, as they came pressing up, and claimed him as my prisoner. It was all I could do to keep them from shooting him in the flush of success, but I persisted in my bargain, and Alfred sold him to me. Well, I took him in hand, and in one fortnight I had him tamed down as submissive and tractable as heart could desire. "'What in the world did you do to him?' said Marie. Well, it was quite a simple process. I took him to my own room, had a good bed made for him, dressed his wounds, and tended him myself until he got fairly on his feet again. And, in process of time, I had free papers made out for him, and told him he might go where he liked. "'And did he go?' said Miss Ophelia. "'No.' The foolish fellow tore the paper in two, and absolutely refused to leave me. I never had a braver, better fellow, trusty and true as steel. He embraced Christianity afterwards, and became as gentle as a child. He used to oversee my place on the lake, and did it capitally, too. I lost him the first cholera season. In fact, he laid down his life for me, for I was sick almost to death, and when, through the panic, everybody else fled, Scipio worked for me like a giant and actually brought me back into life again. But, poor fellow, he was taken, right after, and there was no saving him. I never felt anybody's loss more. Eva had come gradually nearer and nearer to her father, as he told the story, her small lips apart, her eyes wide and earnest with absorbing interest. As he finished, she suddenly threw her arms around his neck, burst into tears, and sobbed convulsively. "'Eva, dear child, what is the matter?' said St. Clair, as the child's small frame trembled and shook with the violence of her feelings. "'This child,' he added, "'ought not to hear any of this kind of thing. She's nervous.' "'No, papa, I'm not nervous,' said Eva, controlling herself suddenly, with a strength of resolution singular in such a child. "'I'm not nervous, but these things sink into my heart.' "'What do you mean, Eva?' "'I can't tell you, papa. I think a great many thoughts.' Perhaps some day I shall tell you. Well, 
Think away, dear. Only don't cry and worry your papa," said St. Clair. Look here. See what a beautiful peach I have got for you. Eva took it and smiled, though there was still a nervous twitching about the corners of her mouth. Come, look at the goldfish," said St. Clair, taking her hand and stepping onto the veranda. A few moments, and merry laughs were heard through the silken curtains as Eva and St. Clair were pelting each other with roses and chasing each other among the alleys of the court. There is danger that our humble friend Tom be neglected amid the adventures of the higher-born, but if our readers will accompany us up to a little loft over the stable, they may perhaps learn a little of his affairs. It was a decent room, containing a bed, a chair, and a small rough stand, where lay Tom's Bible and hymn-book, and where he sits at present, with his slate before him, intent on something that seems to cost him a great deal of anxious thought. The fact was that Tom's home yearnings had become so strong that he had begged a sheet of writing-paper of Eva, and, mustering up all his small stock of literary attainment acquired by Master George's instructions, he conceived the bold idea of writing a letter, and he was busy now on his slate, getting out his first draft. Tom was in a good deal of trouble, for the forms of some of the letters he had forgotten entirely and of what he did remember he did not know exactly what to use. And while he was working, and breathing very hard in his earnestness, Eva alighted, like a bird, on the round of his chair behind him, and peeped over his shoulder. "'Oh, Uncle Tom, what funny things you are making there!' "'I'm trying to write to my poor old woman, Miss Eva, and my little children,' said Tom, drawing the back of his hand over his eyes. But somehow I'm feared I shan't make it out. I wish I could help you, Tom. I've learned to write some. Last year I could make all the letters, but I'm afraid I've forgotten. So Eva put her golden head close to his, and the two commenced a grave and anxious discussion, each one equally earnest and about equally ignorant. And with a deal of consulting and advising over every word, the composition began, as they both felt very sanguine, to look quite like writing. "'Yes, Uncle Tom, it really begins to look beautiful,' said Eva, gazing delightedly on it. "'How pleased your wife will be, and the poor little children! Oh, it's a shame you ever had to go away from them. I mean to ask Papa to let you go back some time.' "'Mrs. said that she would send down money for me as soon as they could get it together,' said Tom. "'I'm specting she will. Young Massa George, he said he'd come for me, and he gave me this yer dollar as a sign.' and Tom drew from under his clothes the precious dollar. "'Oh, he'll certainly come, then,' said Eva. "'I'm so glad.' "'And I wanted to send a letter, you know, to let him know where I was, and tell poor Chloe that I was well off, cause she felt so dreadful, poor soul.' "'I say, Tom,' said St. Clair's voice, coming in the door at this moment. Tom and Eva both started. "'What's here?' said St. Clair, coming up and looking at the slate. "'Oh, it's—' "'Tom's letter. I'm helping him to write it,' said Eva. "'Isn't it nice?' "'I wouldn't discourage either of you,' said St. Clair. "'But I rather think, Tom, you'd better get me to write your letter for you. I'll do it when I come home from my ride.' "'It's very important he should write,' said Eva. "'Because his mistress is going to send down money to redeem him, you know, Papa. He told me they told him so.' St. Clair thought, in his heart, that this was probably only one of those things which good-natured owners say to their servants, to alleviate their horror of being sold, without any intention of fulfilling the expectation thus excited. 
but he did not make any audible comment upon it, only ordered Tom to get the horses out for a ride. Tom's letter was written in due form for him that evening, and safely lodged in the post-office. Miss Ophelia still persevered in her labors in the housekeeping line. It was universally agreed among all the household, from Dinah down to the youngest urchin, that Miss Ophelia was decidedly curious, a term by which a southern servant implies that his or her betters don't exactly suit them. The higher circle in the family, to wit Adolph, Jane, and Rosa, agreed that she was no lady. Ladies never keep working about as she did. That she had no air at all, and they were surprised that she should be any relation of the St. Clair's. Even Marie declared that it was absolutely fatiguing to see Cousin Ophelia always so busy. And, in fact, Miss Ophelia's industry was so incessant as to lay some foundation for the complaint. She sewed and stitched away from daylight till dark, with the energy of one who is pressed on by some immediate urgency, and then, when the light faded, and the work was folded away, with one turn-out came the ever-ready knitting-work, and there she was again, going on as briskly as ever. It really was a labor to see her. End of chapter 19